Hello and welcome to 21st Century Vitalism, a podcast asking the question, what does it mean to be fully alive in the 21st century? And what does it take to maintain that aliveness while dealing with the unique stressors of this very strange and very potent time? I am your host, Brett Kane. I'm a massage therapist and mindfulness meditation practitioner. And joining me today to explore this question is the one and only Susan Piver. For those of you who do not know who this human is, she's a New York Times bestseller of nine different books, including The Hard Questions, How Not to Be Afraid of Your Own Life, and more recently, The Four Noble Truths of Love, Buddhist Wisdom for Modern Relationships. Susan is a Buddhist practitioner and has been since 1995. She is a teacher who founded the Open Heart Project, which just so happens to be the world's largest online-only meditation center. She's been interviewed on Oprah by Katie Couric, New York Times, and also given speeches at Google and Harvard Medical School of Mindfulness and Psychotherapy. Uh, she is an incredible human whose primary pivot point is on modern relationships and how Buddhism can be brought into them to help you navigate some of the challenges and how to fully celebrate the beautiful moments. So that's what this conversation is going to be about is really the entire life cycle of a relationship from finding the right person to maintaining a sense of integrity with the dynamic even though everything is always falling apart and inevitably what happens when it completely falls apart. So this is a very powerful conversation. There's so many different topics in here that are so important for the enterprise of having a human relationship in this current time and place. And, you know, it really might be one of my favorite episodes, definitely the ones that I've had on relationships. And I honestly consider her one of my teachers now. So yeah, I really encourage you to sit through and really listen to everything that's shared because it really is beautiful and profound and important if you want to surf the waters of relationship in this day and age. I do also want to say that the second half of the conversation, we are greeted with Mother Nature herself in the form of a bunch of birds. <laughs> and I tried to edit some of them out, but then I realized that I actually kind of like them there. So uh, I just wanted to give you that heads up. You'll hear some chirping and uh, just imagine that we're all sitting in a garden together, which is what I did and uh, actually started to enjoy them. So I creatively left them in. And uh, yeah, that's what we're going to be doing today. It's all about relationship and heartbreak and everything in between. If you do want to keep in contact with Susan, head on over to susanpiver.com or openheartproject.com. I really encourage you to check her out on social media, specifically Instagram. She's always posting little tidbits of wisdom that you can chew on with your heart and your mind. And really, I found it so enriching and um, a lot of the stuff I will probably carry with me forever. So I encourage you to really give this episode your full attention and to absorb what she's saying and whether or not you apply all of it or even just 10% of it, I think it can really make a difference in how you perceive and navigate the world of relationship. So yeah, head on over to susanpiver.com or openheartproject.com. If you want to support this show, you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, subscribe on YouTube. It also really helps if you leave a review over at Apple Podcast. That's 21st Century Vitalism. Uh, we also got that Patreon life. So that's patreon.com slash 21st Century Vitalism. And that's what the agenda is for today. So please sit back, drink some tea, do some stretches, whatever you got to do to just open your heart up wide for Susan Piver. Susan, we are now live. Uh, I want to start by saying thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you here. And how are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you for inviting me. I'm glad to be here. Yeah. So just as a disclosure for the listeners, I originally uh, came to find your platform through practicing with my teacher, David Nickturn, uh, as we were saying a little bit before this. Uh, we spent six weeks learning the Heart Sutra with you, and I was immediately really 
uh, turned on by your teaching style and the level of clarity and the mag the, your ability to magnetize people when they have questions and actually really empower them to tune into their own wisdom was I had light bulbs every week. So I just wanted to start by gassing you up that I, I just think <laughs> you're doing a really wonderful job with communicating these really um, sometimes confusing things. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So as I uh, really explored your platform, followed you on Instagram, looked at all your books, you know, I, I didn't realize during the Heart Sutra thing that your whole wheelhouse is relationships and bringing the Dharma to relationships. And I, I kind of wanted to start this off by just kind of first asking, like, how did you make your way to Buddhism? And at what point did you realize, like, oh, this is perfect for something that we're all going through and relating mm. with others? Yeah, thank you. Well, I, I've been a I've been a practicing Buddhist for a long time, close to thirty years now. And what drew me to it, honestly, was Chögyam Trungpa Rinpoche, because I read a book by him, "The Heart of the Buddha." I'll never forget it. I was like, "Who is this guy?" Oh, this makes so much sense. This was after he died. I never met him, but I there was a voice and a view and a clarity that I had never heard before. Then it was pure serendipity, <laughs> pure serendipity. I, won't, I don't have to go. I mean, it's a kind of a longish story, but I met someone who knew someone who introduced me to the person that is still my meditation teacher going on 30 years. And that person happened to have been a very close student of Trungpa Rinpoche. So it was a, of a piece and that was it. I never practiced in it, have never practiced in any other lineage or according to any other view. So, and then in terms of relationships, my partner is not a Buddhist or a meditator, but that seemed to have no bearing on the value of the teachings in our relationship, learning how to navigate irritation and worse and uh, distance and recovering a sense of closeness, the Dharma, I'm like, wait, why did it, no one ever say this before? This is what helps me in love. Hmm. Yeah, I was, I also want to say that I, oftentimes I'm, I'm training with uh, David Nickturn, a mutual friend, and I, I, he's introduced me to Chogyam Trumpa as well. And it's weird because I obviously have never met him, but there is something about his voice and the view that he shared with us that I really do also consider him my root teacher. And reading his books, it's like he's talking directly to you, you know, directly to your experience in such a way that is kind of eerie. <laughs> I, I, I'm with you 100%. Uh, yeah. I didn't meet him either. I This was maybe five years after he died or something, but it's the same thing. Yeah. And we're of different generations, and we came upon this at different times. Still, that note that is struck by that voice and all the craziness and controversy and brilliance and confusion of who knows who that guy was, but that voice strikes a very clear bell. And he has such a wide breadth of work, too. I mean, he's got like 20 plus books. And every time I read one, it's just like so pertinent to exactly where I am and like my level of understanding. It feels like a conversation. This is a little off the rail, just sharing my mutual appreciation and, you know, recognition that it's the real deal. <laughs> That's so great. I'm happy for you. It's it's really good fortune to find something yeah. like this. Yeah. So I'm kind of curious in the Buddhist system... Uh, my understanding of it, I mean, it evolved for thousands of years in, you know, Central Asia, and oftentimes it was really practiced in monasteries. So with you bringing these teachings to the world of relationship, what is like the traditional view of like love in marriage in the Buddhist system? And how, how was that for you to kind of translate that to our modern day? Mm, that is a great question. And, you know, there is no, there is no there is no view of marriage, love and marriage in the Buddhist tradition, as far as I know. I mean, there 
I'm sure there is, depending on the lineage and the culture, and there are marriage ceremonies in the Buddhist world and so on. But it was very interesting for me to learn that perhaps since the vast majority of teachers that we're aware of from the last 2,500 years were men who were not married, there isn't a lot of this is how you apply the Four Noble Truths to love, or this is how the four immeasurables relate to romance, or there is none of that. So when we got married, it was in a Buddhist ceremony, quote unquote, but we kind of had to make it up because there was no such ceremony. So yeah, there, there, there is not a lot, which is interesting and, and exciting. There, there will be. That's kind of our job, I think, in the West. That's something we can, we can do. We can imagine. Yeah, it's, it's interesting when I think a lot of people think of Buddhism if they have like kind of a layman's understanding. A lot of the teachings don't really uh, bode well for the idea of anything like long lasting or sustainable. I mean, one of like the core things is like everything ends and, you know, like passion is one of the, like, the root aversions that keeps us like bound to the wheel of samsara and attachment is the root of all suffering. And I know that a lot of the current conversation on relationships, like passion is like kind of a good thing. Like you want a little bit of passion and it's like a spice that kind of keeps things fresh and you should probably be sure. somewhat attached to your significant other. You know? how, right? how, do you, how do you take a teaching like that that says like passion is actually what keeps us confused and bring it into the world of relationship? Yeah. <laughs> Also a great question. There, you know, in the Buddhist view, as I understand it, there are sort of three ways to work with strong feelings such as passion. First is to consider them afflictive. And they are, according to, you know, basically everyone. They they hurt, they confuse, they distract from the path, from mindfulness, perhaps. So okay, first view, afflictive, try not try to dissolve them. Okay, sometimes we can do that. Second view, I, they're a bridge. As you understand your passion, your joys, your sufferings, that gives you the ability to feel compassion towards anyone who experiences what you now experience. So if you just get rid of it, you don't have that journey to understanding of other people. Third view is it's a masked form of wisdom itself. So it's not an affliction, or in addition to, it may or may not be an affliction. Okay, bridge schmidge. It's passion masks or holds the longing to love and a certain intense warmth. Those are not bad things. Those are powerful things. So in these three views, also consonant with the Hinayana, Mahayana, and Vajrayana view, there's space. And attachment is a particular sort of uh, pet peeve for me, because when people talk about the problem of attachment, sure, okay, but they're attached to non-attachment. And that is exactly the same lineage of problem. So there's something between I, I don't want to be attached. Oh, that's an attachment. And I'm working with my attachments that there's a middle way there. Mm. And I don't think passion and attachment are enemies. And I don't think they're friends. They're arisings. Wow. Yeah, it, it seems that there's a level of naturalness. Like when somebody isn't, uh, practiced in the Dharma and they're just kind of living their lives and going with the flow of their, whether their wisdoms or their neuroses or the mixture of the two, we do form attachments, you know, and I do feel like having like space around that situation, kind of, as you said, to really understand it in a way where it doesn't come off as a weight, but actually comes off as kind of like a container that allows you to expand space within is kind of the way that my yoga teacher talks about it is you have to be able to acknowledge that there is um 
not walls, but th that containment so that you can really explore the thing within it. And before we started, you know, I talked about how I recognize within my generation that a lot of people are really exploring a lot of different ways of relating with people and really playing with the definitions of that container in ways that I think prior generations may not have. and I, <laughs> Or tried to. Yeah, yeah. And found... Yeah, but it's a different generation. Who knows what you all will find. But there's something about container. I mean, the word you use that is very important. Yeah. You know, That's... I'm not in your generation, so I don't know what it would feel like to be looking, you know, around or dating or loving or I don't know what it would be like. But at the same time, there's something very potent about commitments and vows in the Buddhist path and in the relationship path. And without them, the container is leaky. Yeah. That's my understanding, but I'm old. So, you know, maybe there's another way to look at it. <laughs> well, I, I, I think that there's kind of a, um, very experimental phase that I'm recognizing. So I trust the wisdom of people who have seen this kind of like happen and then recede. Mm -hmm. And um, something that, I, you know, I hear a lot uh, from a lot of folks is this idea of like loving unconditionally and then using that as a means to kind of do whatever you want, even if it might be kind of problematic. So I guess I'm curious from a Buddhist perspective, because that is something that we prioritize is unconditional love. But it also seems like, conditions are what really enforce that container so like when does that kind of become sticky <laughs> i yeah i don't know I, I don't know because i've been in one relationship for almost 30 years um which is insane crazy thing to do um but unconditional love in the Buddhist view is synonymous with recognition of absolute emptiness and abiding in the non-dual state. I don't think it has anything to do with how your relationships look. But if people want to experiment with that view of unconditional love, meaning there is no me, there is no you, there is no gift, no giver, no recipient. Well, that that's the Vajrayana journey. But I don't think that's what is meant when unconditional love is, you know, it's very confusing. And I, my guess, and I don't know, you tell me if I'm wrong, is by unconditional love, perhaps people mean, I will love who I love when I love. And all I can say is, cool, good luck with that. And if you want to date your whole life, that's a fantastic stance. I never thought I would get married, by the way. I never, ever did. But it's, it's, I was not interested. But at some point, I, was, I became interested in what a relationship could be. And... Just like my meditation practice, my guiding question is, what will deepen this? What will deepen this? And I felt that with experience of relationship, what would deepen it was close the door. Just get married. And that is accurate. I'm not saying that's the right way, and I'm not saying it's all kittens and balloons. But to really, what is this? What does it mean to love? What does it mean to accompany? What does it mean to be with someone else day in, day out? What will I learn? What will I be able to share? Well, that wouldn't have happened, I don't think, if I kept it all me. Hmm. Yeah, something that as I enter into my 30s and I think about like what I want out of my adult relationships, something that I've really grown to really expand on is like the importance of choice 
you know, and mm-hmm. I think that that's kind of what happens when you like close the door is the acknowledgement, like there might be someone better out there. There might be someone more perfect for me, but I'm choosing this dynamic. And I feel like that choice is kind of like the, the foundation that allows you to do that kind of deeper investigative work, you know, mm-hmm. it also puts you on the journey of the four noble truths. That's what was my discovery because the marriage vow usually includes some version of till death do we part or, you know, that rarely happens that way, but all relationships will end as we sort of were touching on earlier. There's no, every, that's just how it is. I, that my feeling is that's why people find it difficult to choose. It's because you're also confronting the end when you do that. So when you, commit to someone and with the recognition that this will end you know one of us is going to die first that's the best case scenario (laughs) that's pretty much sucks Uh, then there's this quality of preciousness and intensity and heightened everything that comes when you contemplate the first noble truth everything uh, life is unsatisfying or impermanent or suffering so this too, that puts you face to face with the truth. Mm. It's very unpleasant <laughs> Yeah, it, and powerful. It, I, I have actually heard David say this, that like marriage is one of the most like samsaric things that we could do. And it's actually like totally insane to even like take it on. And there is something about that acknowledgement of the impermanence and that heightened charge that, you know, I wonder, you know, like, how do we prepare ourselves to take on that charge? Like, is there maybe like a prerequisite to be able to, because that's a lot of energy, that's a lot of chutzpah, you know, is Mm -hmm. there any, like, prerequisites you would suggest for somebody to embark on something like that? Well, the ideal would be to be fully enlightened. That would be the ideal. (laughs) That's the best prerequisite. Barring that, some, no, you can't prepare for it. I've tried. I know. Yeah. Yeah. You can't. It, you just go in and look around and trust yourself. And, of course, meditation practice is extremely helpful, although my partner is not a meditator. But for me, it's extremely helpful because I'm constantly returned I, to my own discomfort and my own wakefulness and my own open-heartedness in some way that seems useful. Yeah, I, I was really curious about, I, I'm interested to hear that your partner isn't a meditator and hasn't really spent the time doing that kind of investigative work. And from your experience, do you find that that makes it more difficult if you are a practitioner? Or like, how are you able to, if you're really investigating everything in your experience, but the person you're with doesn't have any tools to do that? Do you find that that can maybe... Oh, he has tools to do that. It, 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 meditation is not the only tool. Mm. So saying he's not a meditator is not the same as saying he has no tools to investigate things. Got you. He's has his own way. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't find that it makes it more difficult. Maybe when we're dying, it will make it more difficult. But the thing that I like about it, well, I like him, so that's the main thing I like. But the other thing that I like is I, I, there's only walking the talk. There's no talk. So there's just being a practitioner, not, hey, what's wrong with your loving kindness? You know, there's no, it's, it places it firmly in the non-conceptual. Wow. So... At what point in your career, in your studies, did you realize that the Four Noble Truths, you know, were able to kind of, you've kind of created your own version of them that fits precisely with relationships. And I'm going to say when I read them, it kind of shocked me. <laughs> it was, it Why? Was, there was, well, the, the very first one, right? Uh, you know, relationships never stabilize. Mm-hmm. That, I mean, as a practitioner, I can understand that, but so much of what I've grown to here is what like a healthy relationship is like a healthy, stable relationship. 
And there was something about that that just kind of like knocked the walls of that house down for me. And, you know, like, I, I'm just kind of curious how you kind of brought this. Do you into think the... that's true? Do you think that's true? Uh, sorry, what part? That relationships, that relationships never stabilize. Is, um, do you, is that your experience? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Mine too. Yeah. So any relationship, but you know, when you've been with someone for so many years, there are periods of closeness, distance, and we, we got locked into a period of distance and it wasn't just meh. It was, I don't like you. Everything either one of us did upset the other person for no reason. It wasn't like somebody cheated on somebody or somebody, I don't know what, lied or there was no cause. It was just friction and it was horrible. And it went on for months. It wasn't like, oh, the week was, we didn't get along this weekend. It was now we had them gotten along for like four months. So one day I was sitting at my desk, this very desk, and I was just crying. Like maybe it's over. I thought we loved each other, but everything ends. Maybe, maybe it's over. I don't know where to begin fixing this because we've tried all sorts of things. And the very next thought I had was begin at the beginning. At the beginning are four noble truths. It was a little bit of like an angel choir moment. And I was like, oh, that's awesome. Thank you. And then I was like, wait, what? <laughs> what does this have to do with anything? So, but I followed that intuition and the four noble truths, as I'm sure you know, they have a, a, a they're choreographed in a certain way. There's a statement of the truth. Life is suffering or unsatisfying, I think is a better translation of dukkha, as I've heard. Grasping creates suffering. Second noble truth. Third noble truth, the cessation of suffering says, just stop doing the second one and you can stop suffering. And then the fourth noble truth is the noble eightfold path. Well, how? How do you stop doing that? So I'm like, okay, well, I've been a Buddhist for a long time. The four noble truths are the four are true in all circumstances, presumably. So how are they true here? Okay, life is suffering. Well, this what I realized, and like, why didn't anyone told? Why didn't anyone tell me this? This is never going to stabilize. We're never going to get this right. It's never going to be like we solved this problem and that problem, and now it's uh, clear sailing. There's always going to be waves. That was a relief. Second noble truth, thinking it should be stable makes it unstable. Or thinking it should be stable makes it very uncomfortable. Because there's a lot of discomfort with the first noble truth. So thinking it should be stable makes it uncomfortable, increases the discomfort, and then meeting the discomfort together third is love as opposed to you you're you should meet my needs which everybody should get their needs met so i'm not not saying that's wrong you should meet my needs what what if you did it this way and i did it that way and why do we always fight about this very good very good to have those investigations but and that's a good partner someone will have that those conversations with you but a great partner is one who will sort of not face off with you, but sort of turn shoulder to shoulder with you and look out at the arc of the journey that you're on right now. Now we like each other, now we don't. Now I like you, you don't like me. Let's see this journey together. That keeps us shoulder to shoulder. That's a beautiful thing. It, it, it leaves nothing out. And then the fourth noble truth of love is there's a way to do it. And then in, in the book that I wrote of this name, Four Noble Truths of Love, I tried to outline those steps that you could take to work back to non-suffering. And I realized, you know, I think it might be, it's not the last, but I think it might be the first book written about love by a Buddhist teacher who's a woman and a wife. 
So that's uh, that's the great area of exploration for us in the West is looking at the teachings through the lens of householders. Yeah. yeah I think that that's one of the most like powerful things that I've picked up from Trump or Rinpoche was I mean, with his like Shambhala teachings. I and mean, he was saying, this isn't just for people in monasteries. You know, this is for people who own businesses, who are in partnerships, who have kids. And, yeah. you know, I, I really have a lot of respect for the people that have come before me that are helping exemplify that and to really define that. And because it really is the Wild West. And it's just... It is the Wild West. Yeah. yeah. It's so, exciting. We can offer something as Westerners to this vast tradition. Yeah. It's a, it's a beautiful honor and responsibility. Yeah. So... Would you say in the the fourth noble truth in the book um, is that where you are there are there tools in that section to help people kind of mm-hmm. navigate when there's nothing but friction like what yeah. is there anything that people can do who might be listening to this who are at wit's end they're on the ropes they're like I liked this person at some point we're just not communicating like how do we make mm-hmm. it through like it's one thing to like yeah I get it you know we won't like each other but like I really don't like this person right now. <laughs> Seriously, do not like this person. Well, yeah, the fourth noble truth outlines sort of steps according to the three yanas, but that's not that helpful to someone who's right in the middle of it right now. But I discovered that when I do loving kindness practice, it really helps me, but not to be a nice person because the traditional loving kindness practice, as I'm sure you know, you start with yourself, then you bring to mind a loved one, wish them well, then a stranger someone you don't have any feelings about, then an enemy, someone you don't like, and then all beings. And you find that your heart is that flexible. But I'm like, okay, I I don't like, I hate my husband. (laughs) Let me try to do loving kindness. And I thought, well, I'll. but when I sat down to do it, I'm like, yeah, okay, he's my loved one. But he's also a stranger. And he's also my enemy. So I put him in each position, starting with myself, because that's always where you start. I saw him as my loved one, my heart softened. I saw him as a stranger, no idea who that guy is. I saw him as an enemy, someone who hurts me. And then I, try, I tried to do loving kindness for all of him, including all of those parts. That was very calming to me. First, just to acknowledge, yeah, you're all these things. And that's, that's okay. I can love, try to give my heart to all those parts of you. Mm-hmm. It's really counter to at least what I've recognized in a lot of relationships, including the ones in my family, where a lot of the times we we really like certain parts of our partner and we really don't like, and we try and maximize the parts that we like and we try and minimize. And then we express to them, like, I don't like it when you do this, like, can you not? And we really try and it like adds this layer of guilt and kind of um, this like stickiness to it that then makes them, when they don't like you that makes them want to act out in the ways they know you don't like that's true and it's totally good to say i don't like it when you do this could you please stop it hurts me or oh yes nobody should stop that that's really important but there's some if you want to think about unconditional love if you want to think about expanding your heart beyond this hurts me don't do it which is very important you could think about loving this whole being, not which doesn't mean being nice or thinking, oh, you're great. It means I see you and I can still wish you well in all of your emanations. I found that I could. I'm sure you could. But that places the love outside the traditional container of rom-coms and which I really like, but it's, it sort of expands this way of loving, which I think is very valuable. Do you think that it is a prerequisite to learn how to love yourself in that same capacity? I do not. No, I do not. I know people say that you should love yourself and that would, that's the ideal Mm -hmm. without question. But I did not learn to love myself until someone else loved me. Then I saw myself in this through these the eyes of love, and then I softened to myself. So I don't think it's as uh, black and white as that. 
love can come to you from any direction. Wow. Yeah, that's kind of the way I've always viewed relationship as a container to be able to really explore and expand our capacity. And, and I feel like learning how to love somebody else, you also learn how to love you as well. But I agree. whether it's out, whether it's in, I mean, to be able to really, it comes back to that choice. You know, you are choosing to show up for that person. You're choosing to show up for yourself. And it can be a really reciprocal kind of dance that, I mean, it just flowers love. <laughs> On good days, yeah. At what point does the instability kind of become untenable? Is there ever, I mean, there has to be like a point where it's like, okay, this is so unstable. It is really affecting me very negatively you know, how yes, do you differentiate I'm so glad you brought that up. yes I, i'm so glad you brought that up because first none of this applies none of it in the presence of abuse or addiction those are problems that the person themselves can't control so no one should think oh a buddhist lady said you know meeting the instability together is love no that doesn't apply so those are clear boundaries. Mm -hmm. I don't know, you know, there's no clear way of dealing with them, but none of this applies in the presence of abuse or addiction. And then otherwise, how far, how do you know when it's untenable, when those things aren't present? Nobody knows. Nobody knows. At some point, hopefully, you know. But the whole thing is a friggin' mystery. Yeah. Why you fall in love with this person, not that person? Why you say or why you leave? Completely mysterious. Mm. It's beyond our conventional views. I think that um, more than half of all musical output would probably agree with you. <laughs> Agreed. Yeah. So. Agreed. When it does get to that point, when you feel that spark of, oh, this, this isn't it. And, or when the person that you're with feels that spark of this isn't it. And if one of those people is not ready to also admit that, how do you handle the dissolution of something in a way that is maybe most easeful, you know, or. Oh, there's it, no easeful way. Dang there's, it. there's no easeful way. <laughs> Sorry. No, it's okay. There's no like, let's shake hands and walk. No, there, no. I, I, you know, I'm sure people have strategies and maybe some of them work. I don't know what they are, but there's pain. It hurts. So there's no like, I don't know. Yeah, we both don't love each other. Cool, let's shake hands and walk away. <laughs> Never seen that anyway. Yeah. Yeah, so for those who are in the middle of that storm, I mean, would you just kind of encourage them to um, feel it, <laughs> to just really sit with it and to actually not turn away from it? Um, do you have any advice for folks who are currently in the hell realm because of something mm. like this? mean like heartbroken mm -hmm. yeah yeah it, it, yeah the trunk Rinpoche writes a lot about the genuine heart of sadness and spiritual warriorship with the primary prerequisite being having a broken heart so that doesn't make it any better <laughs> <laughs> unfortunately but there's some sense that when your heart is shattered, you have no more game. None. Everything you thought was important, not. You feel everything. Not just your own sorrow, but everybody's. Every song makes you cry. Every airport parting or greeting makes you cry. Every minute of sleep can be consumed with this unbelievable pain. That's not fun. But you could say, in the tradition that we've been trained in, you and I, that when you feel everything, you know that only love matters. 
and you cannot close your heart, no matter how hard you try, that you are standing in the shoes of a bodhisattva, an awakened being. Now, my guess is that the great bodhisattvas of our world, the Dalai Lamas and so forth, I don't think they're throwing themselves on their beds crying like I was when I had these experiences. But they have that open-heartedness. They have a, a broken, open heart. And they've somehow stabilized in the open state, which I never could do. But that's a very powerful objective. Mm. And you can't do it when your heart isn't broken because you're not shattered. So everybody should get help and everybody should rely on their friends and everybody should do whatever they can. I remember I, I had like astrologers and therapists and, you know, jugglers and a whole entourage of help lined up. And I think that's useful. But there's also this fully awakened peace to heartbreak that is foisted upon us. So can we explore that? Not to feel better, but to be of greater benefit. Yeah, something that I've noticed in my prior heartbreaks and whenever there's been any substantial sort of losses, I, I remember, I don't remember who was saying it, the, the original phrase is that meditation is actually preparation for death. And the idea that these moments of heartbreak, I mean, it peels back the layers in such a raw way where, I mean, there is no contrivance. You are there with it. It pulls you I mean, your thoughts are there, but you're just in such this raw, tender, immediate moment that there's actually an opportunity. It's it's like one of the bardo states. It's one of these transitionary moments where you can actually use it to connect very directly with the heart of your experience, and that can propel you into kind of deeper places of compassion and dignity and you know, there's just something about that. Like, I'm definitely not going to be running toward these experiences that, you know, I don't want to, you know, put myself in that situation if I don't have to. But there is an opportunity of that opening, that softening. And, you know, it. I, I think we said this earlier, it helps you show up for the people in your life that are also going through that. You're able to recognize, like, I've definitely been there. That's beautifully said. I totally agree all of those points. So is there any um, maybe conventional wisdom as to how to determine whether or not you are actually connected to it or if you're subtly numbing? Because I could also maybe even see people using spirituality as a means to actually push away, even though they think that they're really metabolizing it. But is there any sort of like telltale hint as to like you're actually not processing or is it maybe too unique and individual to? It's definitely unique and individual. But we've all heard about spiritual bypassing. Mm -hmm. So if, if it would be great if spiritual practices could help us bypass pain, but they can't. So there's the only tell I know of is. Well, there's two, actually. First is, can I let go of my agenda for doing these practices? Of course, I want to feel better, and I want to be calmer, and I don't want to be sobbing all the time. That's cool. But can I at least set those things aside when I'm practicing and just be curious and open rather than I need you to perform for me meditation practice or whatever the practice is? That's very, that's a high skill. Can I let go of my agenda? And then the second tell, I think, is complete loss of self, complete loss of humor. Mm. Like I have zero sense of humor left. Mm. I, I got to do this. This has to help me. Great. I hope it will. But when there's no, I can't laugh at myself, not in a mean way, but when I, have no humor about what I'm doing, I know something's gone wrong. Mm. And I'm not just saying that because I like to laugh, which I do, but when the, there's no space, it's claustrophobic when there's no chance for humor. Yeah. 
it's almost like the the momentum of your emotional experience just gets so speedy and agitated that yeah like you're saying like it really is that complete lack of space and then you're just doing things you might not normally do and acting from that that agitated place where a lot of people celebrate that place you know i mean like i said there's a lot of music that i feel comes from that place and it actually kind of says like yeah this is the way you do it you know and that's something yeah yeah that's something i thought about a lot in terms of i mean there is so much music dedicated towards um how how bad somebody's hurting and then i feel like when you're in that space and then you listen to music like that there is a sense of it like feeling good but i almost feel like it could potentially condition you to really prioritize like that like that nasty feeling rather than getting space from it you know like is, is there a chance that the media we end up going to could actually add to that momentum and that claustrophobia as well Sure, probably. But I find for myself, and, and I've taught, spoken to many people about heartbreak because I wrote a book about it, um, that when you encounter, the only thing that helps in when you're in the throes is to be mirrored. Like, oh, this is how I feel. Oh, someone else has been through this. This describes exactly what it feels like to me. There's something very helpful about that way more helpful than advice or strategies, but to feel mirrored in your heartbreak. So the songs that are about that experience, sorry about the birds. It's okay. Um, the songs that are about that heartbreak, I think can be supportive. Mm. And of course it can go too far and you can just wallow. Wow. Yeah. That, that mirroring, you know, like, Oh, other people have gone through that. You know, it kind of does, again it's a part of that like opening experience that like we are all having a human experience and i feel like it could even bring in a sense of humor and a little bit of levity in that like oh yeah this is that thing that humans go through it's not just like me alienated by myself nobody's ever felt this way before you know totally yeah. totally yeah it's you're in a tribe mm. and you're not alone even though there's something it, unbelievably lonely about heartbreak like it's so lonely yeah. and it is but you're alone together with lots and lots of people who have experienced and will experience and are experiencing this what you feel hmm. so i know that we're coming up on time but i really wanted to end it with uh, the idea of like moving beyond heartbreak you know after some time has passed after you've really done your grieving how can people step out of the shadow of that when they really truly feel that they're ready? Like, I think I want to connect with another human, but I'm not sure. I have a lot of apprehension, a lot of fear, this this thing, this trauma that frankly is still there. Like, is there any sort of advice you'd give to people who are ready to move out of that space? Um, no, because there is no advice that I know of what, because it, it, it assumes that all of the agency and all of the, the driver of your experience is fully located within you. And I don't find that to be the whole truth. Relationships itself heal relationships. So for me, I was in this heartbroken state until I fell in love with someone else and then it disappeared. It disappeared hmm. and I it's not that it wasn't real it was but my heart I fell in love and uh, that stepped me beyond the darkness I could not do that on my own hmm. however there is some 2500 years of Buddhist history that says if you want to step beyond be of benefit to others. That can sound really sappy or really like, oh, I'm not important. I should just help others. But it's not a mystery that one of the great sort of directives of Buddhism is if you want to be unhappy, think of yourself. If you want to be happy, think of others. That's not like a sappy formula. That's like, 
when I'm when I'm wrapped up in my own sorrows, which is completely appropriate, I feel hopeless. But when I reach out to someone else, how are you? Let me try to do something on behalf of humans, whatever it might be. That's empowering. I've, that's, a, that's a gesture of empowerment. And sorrow is, feels very disempowering. So I'm not saying it's wrong or bad. It's actually right and good. But if you want to recover a sense of empowerment, do something on, be, on behalf of others. It works, like, unbelievably. <laughs> <laughs> that is wonderful. Well, we are at time, so thank you so much. I'm actually surprised. My original goal was to cover every step of a relationship, like meeting, the preservation, and then the dissolution, and we actually did it. So uh, That's awesome. Yeah, that was awesome. Uh, again, thank you so much. Where can people find you? How can people connect with you? You have a few books, just like a few, right? I have a few, yeah. Um, well, first, it's been a delight to talk with you, so thank you. Thank you for the conversation. And I have an online community called the Open Heart Project. So openheartproject.com is where people can connect with me. And I have a new book coming out in a few months called The Buddhist Enneagram. And that I look forward to sharing with others, I guess. <laughs> yeah, you had like the first online meditation community, right? Like when the pandemic happened, you were like the first to drop that ball. We were had been online for seven years. Oh, okay. Yeah, wow. it's only ever been an online community. Wow. Okay. So, yeah. That's amazing. Awesome. Well, yeah. again, thank you so much, Susan. All the links and stuff will be in the description as people do. Uh, we'll catch you next time. Thank you. Of course. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening all the way through till the end. That was Susan Piver. If you want to keep in contact with her, you can head on over to openheartproject.com or susanpiver.com and also follow her on Instagram or Facebook. She has some really amazing short videos that will give your mind and heart something to chew on for the day. She has a lot of really potent and juicy advice that she drip feeds through there. So I really encourage it. I really look forward to seeing her content whenever she posts. It's always very enlivening and enriching. And if you want to support this show, head on over to Apple Podcasts, leave us a review. You can do the Patreon thing at patreon.com slash 21st Century Vitalism. You can also follow us on Instagram or Facebook or YouTube. Any interaction helps. I really appreciate it. And I see you. I see everybody who does interact and people who reach out and let me know how they're feeling about the show. It also is really fun for me to hear from you uh, who's out there. So thank you again so much for listening. We'll be back in two weeks with another incredible human being. I am so excited about to record with them tomorrow. And I have been looking forward to this one pretty much all year. So uh, yeah, that's going to be really great. So thank you again so much for listening. I really appreciate it. Bye.